We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at its voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go, and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Good morning. It's good to see you today. My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at Emmaus. And uh, it's my joy to get to introduce to you in just a moment um, one of our, uh, the man who will be preaching for us uh, this morning. Uh, but before I do that, I just want to say thank you for joining us today. If you're a guest, I would love to meet you um, in the lobby after the service. Stop by at the Connect table. Um, we'd, we'd love to hear your story and how you came to join us or uh, as little information as you want to share about yourself. And we'd love to answer any questions that you have um, for us as well. But thanks for joining us today. Covenant members, it's a joy to see you and get to, uh, to join you um, in worship today. Let's remember to pray for our many covenant members who are sick with the just continual stuff going around, and then ask you to also be in prayer for our church partnership in, um, in Italy, in Genoa, Italy. The city there is um, basically on lockdown, near quarantine stage now with the uh, coronavirus that's going on there. And so we want to pray for them and the ministry that's going on and the health of um, our pastoral partnership there as well. Hey, uh, one of the unique things that God has gifted our church with is um, a plethora of gifted teachers, um, men um, and women who are gifted at teaching, and, and in this particular instance, men who are gifted at preaching the scriptures as well. Uh, this morning, uh, we're in Isaiah, as you just heard, we're journeying through the prophets, uh, one sermon from each prophet, 
and none of our pastors wanted to do the whole book of Isaiah. So we asked someone else to. Um, that's, that's partly joking. But um, we have the joy this morning of hearing from one of our covenant members, uh, Dr. Andrew King. Uh, Andrew is uh, the associate dean at Spurgeon College here in town, and he is a Old Testament um, uh, professor as well. And so when we asked him if he would be interested in preaching through Isaiah for us in one sermon, um, he was eager to do so, and we're excited to hear him preach to us this morning from this um, book. And so, Andrew, if you'd come, I'm going to pray for us, and then when I'm done, man, you can take it for us. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for this um, opportunity this morning to hear this word. I thank you for the opportunity to gather um, with your people. And I pray that you would take this beautiful, beautiful text, and that you would implant it upon our hearts, and that the Spirit would move within us to convict us and to warn us and to encourage us and to call us to faithfulness, and most importantly, to call us to see your faithfulness. May we see Jesus today from Isaiah. Would you be with Andrew as he preaches? Would you give his mind clarity and his words clearness? And Spirit, would you preach a better sermon through him than he's even prepared for us? Thank you for the blessing of men in our church who can faithfully open and present the word to us. And may we be fed by you today. May we love you all the more for it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Josh. Well, good morning. It is a joy to gather with you. If you're not there already, open with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And if we haven't met personally, uh, as Pastor Josh said, my name is Andrew, and uh, my wife Lauren and I, along with our four kiddos, have loved being a part of this community. Uh, so thank you for welcoming us into this faith family. And I'm grateful for the kind invitation to open God's Word with you this morning. Uh, so if I can, let me pray one more time for God's help, and then we'll dive in. Lord, you are good and faithful, strong and kind. Lord, we are desperate people this morning in need of all of those things. We thank you that you are for us in your Son this morning. And Lord, like the Gentiles in John chapter 12, Lord, this morning we wish to see Jesus. So would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what is in this amazing book? Would you help me in my weakness to serve my brothers and sisters to exalt your Son through your Word? We pray all of this by the Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. We all sense that the world is not as it should be. It can often feel chaotic and out of control. There's things like coronavirus and death. There's war and there's violence. There's prejudice and racism. There's injustice and abuse and the list goes on and on. And it's not just the world out there. We feel it internally, don't we? Maybe you wonder why you can't shake that paralyzing feeling of anxiety that threatens to consume your every thought. Maybe you feel at war with your own body and the desires that you have don't match the way that you were designed. Maybe you feel burdened by your sin this morning. Maybe you're worn out 
from taking things into your own hands, trusting in possessions and people and even your own performance to help bring stability to what feels like chaos, to help you cope with the chaos. Whatever it is, we all sense that things are broken in this world. And though our world can often feel out of control, and hope can sometimes feel like light years away, I believe that this morning, in the book of Isaiah, God has good news for us. It's difficult to overestimate the importance of the book of Isaiah in our Bibles. The book of Isaiah, that is a book in the Old Testament, that is those group of books that came before Jesus, came on the scene, it's a really big book. It's 66 chapters that span roughly 60 years of the prophet's ministry. A lot of stuff in there. If you sat down to just read it straight through, it would take about four hours with no coffee breaks, which is not realistic for me. It's a multi-layered book, as the prophets so often are. Looking back to what God had said and done in the past, while addressing the prophet's situation in his own day, and looking forward to what God had said he would do in the future. Its scope is all-encompassing. Isaiah, as a book, roughly divides in two sections. Chapters 1 to 39 largely deal with the events of Isaiah's own times in Judah. Remember, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah are divided at this point in history with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the first part also deals with foreign peoples as well. While chapters 40 to 66 largely look forward to a time when the people would be judged definitively for their sin and they'd be sent away from their land into exile, but when God would act to redeem and restore His people, and not just His people, but all of creation. Isaiah is such a rich book. Did you know it's the second most quoted Old Testament book in the New Testament? And in fact, in the early church, many of the early church fathers actually called Isaiah the fifth gospel. And it's not easy, it's not difficult to see why it would stand alongside Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. Because in the book of Isaiah, we see some of the clearest pictures of the person and work of Jesus in the Old Testament. And it's my hope this morning that as we dip our toes into the ocean of this Old Testament book, that we here in this room would, like Isaiah, behold the glory of Christ. I believe this familiar passage in Isaiah chapter 6 at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry in many ways encapsulates a central theme that we see regularly throughout the book of Isaiah, and a theme that I think can help us make sense of what God is doing in this book. And that theme is this, the kingdom of God. So as we look at Isaiah 6 together as an entry point into the book as a whole, I think we see at least three aspects 
of the kingdom of God. In verses 1 to 4, we see the king's majesty. In verses 6 to 7, we glimpse the king's mercy. And in verses 8 to 13, we see the king's mission and the king's Messiah. Isaiah 6.1 begins with a timestamp. In the year that King Uzziah died. So after five chapters and of pictures and oracles of sin and judgment with some glimpses of hope, Isaiah steps back to tell us how he got here. He says that in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting on a throne. In the book of Isaiah, we encounter a number of kings. Our chapter is dated in reference to one in the year that King Uzziah died. We read about Uzziah, who's called elsewhere in the Bible, Azariah, uh, in 2 Kings 15. In both Isaiah chapter 7 and Isaiah chapters 36 and 37, we read two narratives about two kings of Judah. Ahaz, who's the grandson of Uzziah, and his son, Hezekiah. And both in these narratives, they're they're faced with foreign nations threatening war against the land. Not a great situation. And the question for both of them is whether they would believe God who said that he would deliver the people. Whether they would trust God or not. Ahaz fails the test and doesn't trust God, but Hezekiah is shown to be faithful, to believe God that he would rescue his people as he said. Yet even this good king, Hezekiah, just a few chapters later in Isaiah 39, we we read about Hezekiah falling into pride that led to some pretty bad stuff for future generations. So the two main kings that we read narratives about in the book of Isaiah turn out ultimately to be disappointments in some big ways. We read about other kings as well in the book. Kings of foreign nations. And they're often filled with pride and they boast of their might and their greatness, which never goes well for them. Just read it. You see, the book of Isaiah makes clear that kings come and kings go. That nations rise and nations fall. But no matter how able the leader, they all have an abbreviated term limit. When these kings are dead and gone, there is one king in Isaiah who is sitting on the throne. And Isaiah says that he is high and lifted up. His presence filling the temple. We read in verse 2 that around him are these creatures called seraphim, literally burning ones with a bunch of wings flying around. It's super weird. Awesome. These seraphim are calling to each other in verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
It's as, as it's almost like these creatures are pushing the limits of language to say what is true of this king. That he is holy. That is, that he is set apart. He is perfect in every way. He is not a part of creation, but is the creator. He is devoted to the fame of his own incomparable name. Nearly 30 times in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah refers to God as the Holy One of Israel. A phrase that doesn't occur too much outside of the book of Isaiah, but occurs a lot within. You see, Isaiah gives us some of the grandest visions of the majesty of God in all of Scripture. I would encourage you, if you haven't done this already, just read through the latter half of Isaiah and just be struck by the majesty of God. This king is majestic, and there is none like him. Isaiah 40.25 asks the ridiculous rhetorical question, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. God says, go outside and look up at the night sky and be still and know that I am God. Friends, this truth is staggering. 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone I can't count that high. I can't imagine what that looks like. 100 billion stars with whom this king is on a first name basis. Billions and trillions of stars. And he knows everyone by name. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you think God has forgotten yours? I know there's someone in this room right now who feels forgotten, forsaken, all alone, feel like things are falling apart. You're worried about your job, you're worried about your marriage, you're overwhelmed with your responsibilities, you feel like a parenting failure. You're discouraged by your singleness. You're frustrated by your parents. You're anxious about the future. You're worried about the past. Friends, can I remind you of something this morning? Regardless of how we feel, we need to remember that there is not one square inch of all creation. No heights nor depths, where the sovereign and holy king of all creation does not reign. When the world feels like chaos, he is king. 
But in our text, that's not good news yet. We see that in light of the king's majesty, even the prophet is in need of the king's mercy. How do you think you would respond to this vision in verses 1 to 4? Well, we see how Isaiah responds. Having seen the awesome presence of the exalted and majestic king, Isaiah says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. The prophet's first response in the presence of God isn't one of worship. It's not joy. It's not dialogue. All right, God, what are we going to get done in the coming years? No, he's simply concerned that he just might die. Why? He states the problem is that he is a man of unclean lips in the presence of a perfect and holy God. Lips here are just representative of his person as a whole. So seeing God as he is, Isaiah knows something immediately true about himself. And in the presence of God, he is unclean, he is sinful. When you walk through the book of Isaiah, we learn that the land is full of idolatry. People like worshiping stuff they made with their hands. There's violence in the land. People are trusting everything and everyone but God. There's injustice. Pride, self-righteousness, their moral compasses are totally out of whack. All the things that were condemned in the law of Moses, the people have committed themselves to in daily life. And it's not just Judah and Israel. In Isaiah chapters 14 to 23, we encounter something we'll often see as we walk through the prophetic books what are often called the oracles against the nations. And in this section, we see the Lord naming specific nations, neighboring Israel near and far, to announce his purposes for them and his judgment of them for their sin, often their pride and their violence. Regardless of where they live, these nations are equally guilty before God. See, the God of the Bible is no tribal deity. He's the God of all the earth. And in the midst of all of this idolatry, violence, and sin, Isaiah, who, may I remind you, is like the good guy in the story. He sees that he is in the same boat as all of these people. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Here's the point. Whether pagan or prophet, all people have fallen short of the glory of God. Isaiah saw that he was ruined, that he was lost. 
But this majestic king is a merciful king. At the moment he thinks he's going to die in verse 7, God sends a seraph to take a coal from the altar and touch Isaiah's lips. And he says, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Oh, what mercy. God does not leave an open-handed sinner to his own misery. Praise the Lord. He does what Isaiah cannot do and he deals with his sin. We get the sense as we're reading the narrative that if there's hope for this sinner, perhaps there's hope for the rest of us. And having dealt with the messenger, the king now can get on with the mission for which he is called Isaiah. Starting in verse 8, we see Isaiah's job description. He's called and commissioned to preach so that people won't listen to him. How would you like that job? If Pastor Josh said, hey, we want you to preach on Sunday, and by the way, no one's going to listen to you, I would say, well, maybe you should just do it, brother. (laughs) They listen to you. Isaiah is called to preach so people would not listen. And in fact, his preaching would be the means by which the people would be hardened. He's preaching and they're plugging. Now, Isaiah is not being told to preach such complicated and lofty sermons that people can't track with him. In fact, God uses Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 8. God says, hey, Isaiah and your kids, you're going to be like a visual of what your message is. He's putting it on display for all the senses. But the issue is made clear through the rest of the book, really the rest of the Bible, is that the message that Isaiah was to preach wouldn't be received because of the people's hearts. This is the same problem that Moses dealt with in his day. The people couldn't heed Isaiah's words because their hearts were hardened towards God. How long would this last? It's Isaiah's question in verse 11. God says, until people are destroyed, set into exile. It's a hard word. You see, all the way back in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God had told people the outcome of persistent rebellion against the law. He said they would be judged and they would be exiled out of their land into a foreign land. And God's prophets often came bearing a covenant lawsuit against the people, calling them to see their sin and to turn back to God. Yet time and time again, so much like us, they hardened their hearts. They even persecuted the prophets. And this time God is saying it'd be no different. In essence, Isaiah would be the aroma of God to those who are perishing. A fragrance of death unto death. So God says the tree of Israel and Judah would be cut down, be burned over. Isaiah says that God would even use Israel's enemies 
wicked and pagan nations to actually execute this judgment. So like not exactly the best message if you're not like trying to get killed by the people that you're preaching to. The picture Isaiah paints is very dark for the future of the people. And that's just helpful to know as you're just reading through the book. You just think, why is there so much judgment in here? Well, God tells us that's exactly why he called Isaiah. Isaiah would be unfaithful if it wasn't all in there. This is a message that he was called to proclaim. And we learn that the king's mission is to be faithful to the terms of the covenant, even in judgment. But, oh friends, this is so crucial. God's mission is not just one of judgment, but one of glorious hope. And the way that this hope is realized in the book of Isaiah is through the king's Messiah. At the end of verse 13, God says that though two waves of judgment burn the people down to a stump, he would leave something there. A seed. That is, a a purified remnant that would be called holy. He'd mentioned this holy remnant already in Isaiah 4.3. He mentions it again here. And through this holy seed, we see that despite the historic sin and rebellion of the people, God had not given up on his program for the world. You see, God had promised King David that he would always have a son to sit on the throne. Before that, he made a promise to Abraham that through his family, that is the Israelites, All the nations of the earth would be blessed. And long before that, he made a promise to Eve that one of her offspring would crush the head of the serpent, would roll back sin and death itself, would bring all things to rights. And from this holy seed, in verse 13, we see the emergence of a messianic figure who's described as a king from the line of David. We see that in Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 11, who will rule with justice and with righteousness. But within the context of the entire book of Isaiah, one of the most shocking realities about this king of the Jews is that he is described elsewhere in various ways as a servant. This is the one that we know from Isaiah 53, where it says in Isaiah 53:5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Do you hear it? A king that carries our sin. And 600 years after Isaiah, the Apostle Peter in the New Testament leaves no doubt about who this king is. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24, 
that Jesus Himself has borne our sins and His body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by His wounds. You have been healed. Friends, the good news that we have this morning is that no matter where we are or what we've done, we don't have to despair when we stand before a holy God. Because the King that Isaiah was looking forward to has come. Rather than standing before a holy God and saying, I am lost, we can stand before this King and say, I am found in Christ. Christ simply means Messiah. And He lived a perfect life, a life that we couldn't live. And He died a substitutionary death. That means in our place. And He was raised from the dead, defeating death and sin. So that anyone, anyone in this room who turns from their sin and trusts in Christ will be welcomed into the family of the King. Jesus truly is God with us. Emmanuel. And He is merciful. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this is our King. The kingship of Jesus changes everything. Changes the way that we do Sunday afternoon. Changes the way that we do Monday morning. Changes everything. And through Isaiah, God promised that whatever you're going through today, in this season of life this week, that there's a new heavens and a new earth that are waiting. Where God will be with His people, and His people will be with God. And until then, our King has said that He would never leave us. That He would never forsake us. So this week, cling to His promises. Fill your eyes and your heart with the hope of heaven. Every week, we gather at this table to remember. To remember this majestic and merciful King until He comes again. Jesus said in Matthew 6.29 that He wouldn't drink again of the fruit of the vine until He drinks it with us in the kingdom. So if you're a follower of Christ who's turned from your sin and trusted in King Jesus, this meal is for you. For it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. But if you're here and you've never felt the sinfulness of your sin and the presence of the Holy King, this meal is not for you. Our invitation to you this morning is that where you are, you would come to King Jesus, casting yourself upon His mercy. He will welcome you. He welcomes sinners like me. Sinners like us. If you're a believer, you'll come down row by row on your right side. We've got three tables set up here. There's a gluten-free option over there, you'll tear the bread, you'll dip it in the juice, you'll turn to your seat on this side, but most importantly, you'll remember. 
You'll remember the body and blood of the King that was given for you. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.